0: Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. One of the best tech books I've read in a very long time is Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, Changing Feelings About Technology from the Telegraph to Twitter. Look, we do history on this show, right? And if you know history, you know that every technological innovation freaks people out. Is it rotting our brains? Is it making society worse? Is it making us, well, bored, lonely, angry, stupid? But with the modern internet, with mobile, with social, is it different this time? I spoke to the authors of the book, Luke Fernandez and Susan Matt, and the answer is very interesting, I think. They actually took the time to look back historically about how society has reacted to technological change and how technological change has shaped society and how we think of ourselves. So please enjoy this conversation and please buy the book, Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid. I'm going to start, forgive me, (laughs) with maybe the most cliche question imaginable Which is, you know, what was the inspiration to write this book? But the reason that I ask that is because this is kind of something that I wrestle with all the time, um, which is that, you know, it's like, I think everybody knows, like, with every advance of technology, people clutch their pearls and worry about what it's doing to us. Is it warping our brains? Is it destroying the social fabric? That sort of thing. Um. But then, like, what if this time it is different, is kind of what I wrestle with, like, in the way that a stopped clock, you know, is right twice a day? What if a the sky is falling scenario actually comes to pass? Do you need to acknowledge that? I'm I'm wondering to what degree were you guys uh, poking at at something similar?
1: Yeah, you know, that reminds me of an interesting story. What was the New Yorker columnist who said something similar, you know, that the Romans... Uh, Consoled themselves that the barbarians were at the gates many, many times. You never need to worry. And then all of a sudden, you know, there weren't any Roman baths for 1500 years or whatever. So uh, just because it hasn't happened, just because uh, it's been a progressive, you know, there's been progress in the past doesn't mean that we shouldn't always be worrying about uh, what's going to happen next.
2: And we also, when we were doing our research, we were wondering, at first, is this the, just the same story that other generations wrestled with? with right, exactly. The or the telephone. And um, ultimately, we decided each of these technologies had their own particular effects. Um, and it's not just the same story over again, but each story is a little bit different
0: right and you know um let's go into that now like the, you capture so many of those previous panics about technology so well i mean that's the the rhyming is beautiful and of course uh, technology history is sort of what this show revels in um but like you know just picking randomly like we can start with selfies like when when you guys describe when when photography first came out it was all about like you know a a professional studio and you went and preserved your appearance almost for posterity. That's kind of why people like didn't smile in old photographs aside from the fact that you had to stand perfectly still for about a minute also because of the aperture and things like that. But, but then Kodak comes along and people have access to photography regularly. And then suddenly people are worried about the things that they're worried about now, narcissism, vanity, egoism, all that good stuff.
2: Right
1: um I, I mean yeah you you can call the um the photography sort of the that the, the, there were victorian selfies i mean when you look at uh people going into studios uh in the eighteen sixties uh there there certainly were um instances of people engaging a lot of affectation you know there were the the sort of the classic uh, account that we we often talk about is uh, when, when women would go into the studio, um, you, you know back then people didn't like to reveal a lot of skin, but part of the skin that was revealed was your ankles. And so people put a lot of premium on uh, having slender ankles. If you didn't have slender ankles, um, then you had cause to be worried. But what the photographer would invite you to do was to keep your ankles back. Uh, if you're a woman, and then give you some fake ankles um, that would appear under the hem of the dress. And that worked all just fine, uh, as long as you remember to keep your regular ankles back. If you put them forward, then of course, uh, the photograph had, um, you know, uh, four ankles instead of two. Um, So, so there are plenty of accounts of, of affectation and people engaging in vanity, and so it, you can read the history as sort of a, a precursor to the present, or the, this rhyming with the present. But well, what and we're
0: they, they even had they even had you know you could hire people to help you put put a better face on your photograph or like give you tips for for that sort of thing, or even the idea of smiling. Well, and this is stepping forward a bit, but like. Um, when, when, you know, Kodak comes along and everyone has cameras, then it's this notion, the notion changes where it's about being cheerful and presenting an image of yourself to the world. That's already there. Like, even again, like this idea of Instagram people, like only presenting their best selves and, and being influencers and and things like that, that's already there even in, in photography in the early 20th century.
2: Right. Um, it's definitely on the uptick, uh, by the early 20th century, we see in the 19th century, it's a bit more mixed. I mean, people are beginning to experiment with all these poses, you know, um, posing with props and having beautiful ankles, uh, even if they're fake ones, Um, but they're still hearing from their ministers, you know, don't be vain, don't promote yourself, don't worry about how you look too much, remember you're gonna die soon, Um, it's all futile. Um, by the early 20th century, those warnings are heard less and less. And um, the imperative to look your best is something even ministers will celebrate um, and say that pride in oneself is a good thing. And and then um, not only are you supposed to have pride in yourself, you're supposed to have pride in your family and your house and your vacation. And um, you're right, the, the Kodak camera definitely begins to educate people on how to present themselves um, with uh their own camera as having a perfect and enviable life.
0: Um I'm going to run down a, a couple other of these because I just I love the rhyming. Like it, this is one that I had never occurred to me when we when we talk about the digital divide today, like going back to letter writing, there was like a postal divide because you know, letter writing is this great, noble pursuit that we think of today as like erudite and like. If only we could go back to <laughs> the times when people took the time to write a letter and put it in the mail. But it it was largely for rich people at the beginning, the literate people, the educated people, and then even then, people were worrying about things like, are you narcissistic? Are you just sharing a, the mundane details of your life? It's almost like again. Clutching pearls about about sharing and 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 blogging about what you had for lunch today and things like that.
1: Yeah, they, and you can call it rhyming, but I think what we're really trying to say here is that it really took um, these technologies of the 19th century—the mirror, the phot- photograph, um, the postal service, or letter writing—sort of to sort of acc- to accustom Americans to the idea or the the virtue of of self expression and taking pride in. Uh, oneself, because the older moralists um, were counseling um, that, you know, that pride and vanity were sins, uh, and that you shouldn't uh, indulge them. Uh, but of course, these new technologies, when they emerged, uh, were certainly encouraging that type of behavior, and, it's, and, it, and it forced uh, Americans to sort of reconsider their attitudes towards um, the, the messages of the older moralists. So yeah, we, have, I mean, from the present, we look back and we see these as, you know, we, we look at the photography of the age and call it the Victorian selfie, and and it looks like the same thing, and, and it is to some extent, but, of course, it's really a benchmark of sort of an evolving American psyche, an American psyche that once took, um, you know, was very skeptical of pride and vanity and self-esteem and the emergence of a new American self that um, indulges more in narcissism and is much more receptive to uh, the the virtue of self-expression. And of course the term narcissism, right? We can say that people were narcissistic in the 1850s, but that's, that's an anachronism because people never used that word back then. It only emerges. Uh, yeah.
0: The- uh, you know what? Um, I w- I want to come back to that in a second because a lot of this book is, is almost looking at the, the history of these ideas of, of ourselves and our societies and, and how, how they've evolved over time. Um, Uh, A couple more. Real quick, the the idea that people are too distracted, that they can't concentrate, that attention spans are shrinking, I feel like that's one of those things that has always been trotted out like with everything from TV to even magazines, you know, Uh, because it's like a, a digest to music videos to video games, all that stuff. That's kind of always felt like a straw man argument to me, like the weakest thing that you can trot out with every new technology that like it's you can't focus it's distracting that sort of thing i'm i'm curious how you ended up um um coming down about that
2: well you know uh that was actually where we started there what gave us the impetus to start the book um uh luke uh, applied for a grant to study distraction in the classroom um and got the grant and that led to us teaching a class on how people have responded to distraction in the past and present. Um, So that was really the genesis of the whole project. Um, uh, You know, what we ended up finding was that uh, our obsession with being able to focus today is a fairly modern obsession. Um, People in the 19th century uh, began to feel increased pressure to concentrate as their world got more complex. and that began to occur in the late 19th century. Um, before that, you know, people were more content being generalists, and you could see that in higher education, um, uh, where people didn't have things like majors, right? You could just kind of learn stuff. Um, you didn't have to have a focused, narrow body of attention, uh, body of knowledge to attend to. And then uh, all these pressures, as the world becomes more complex, there's this idea that you have to focus more and more what people in the 19th century are worried about particularly doctors and some educators is that all this focus may not be good for people it may not be natural to people Um, and uh, they began to fear that our brains were finite and there was only so much attention we could take in um, and that you might overwhelm your brain and wear yourself out um, if you tried to absorb all the information coming over the telegraph um, being carried by the Transcontinental Railroad, coming in on the telephone. So whereas today we kind of think our brains can do anything and absorb anything and multitask, uh, that was certainly not a 19th century belief.
0: Yeah, that's that's kind of one of the things that reading this made me think about, too, is that it's almost like the tyranny of like self-help, self-improvement. Like, like our, our, as a society, are we a little too nervous about ourselves like too angsty always are we too lonely are we too bored are we too distracted it's like born bored lonely distracted angry like it's always a bogeyman maybe of our own invention and then the new kind of always rises up to be the scapegoat for us i'm not trying to put words in your mouth but like that's that's kind of what i i I kept coming back to when i'm when i was reading the whole history of all these things
1: yeah, I mean, I mean, the underlying motivation of the book was when we were reading. You know, we're all familiar probably with that famous article by Nicholas Carr in Atlantic called "Is Google Making Us Stupid?" And there's so many other articles like it, uh, worrying about uh, how the modern psyche is being changed by by the internet. And so we we were interested in going back, uh, you know, another century or two to see whether the anxieties in the past were the same. And, of course, um, there's there's stuff in the past that, that reminds us of our present-day anxieties. But what we're also saying is that the anxieties have, have changed over time as well. So when Susan was saying that, you know, or, you know, yes, of course, even uh, William Wordsworth, I think, said, you know, that the world is too much wor- too much with us, uh, his, his famous poem to that effect. So people were worrying about information overload, um, you know, from From the beginning of the industrial age um, but but our but our anxieties do shift subtly over time, and that's uh really what we're trying to sort of trace in this in this book
0: yeah and a a large part of the book is that it's it's as much of as much as the book is a, a history of the various technologies and and how they plug into society and how they either shape society or vice versa. One of the things you do very well is chart the historical record of these concepts, like concepts of loneliness, concepts of boredom. If you're, as you describe, if you're if you're a pioneer out on the, uh, you know, wherever out on the plains, and you're in a log cabin or whatever, like concepts of boredom or any of these things were different and have changed over time, especially for Americans. And some of them, some of them that, that we're grappling with are are modern like th- th- these are not things that people wrestled with uh back in the day.
2: Yeah, that's that's very true. Um boredom's a great example. It only really um came into being as a word in the 1850s. Um up before that people didn't love having dull, monotonous or tedious times as they called them, um but they they weren't surprised for them it wasn't a whole feeling state unto itself. Um, and it's sort of by cre- the creation of that category that we know that there's a mental shift going on, right? That people are beginning to think, huh, this is an issue, and maybe I should look for ways to solve it. And maybe the, it shows that the tolerance for monotony is going away. And um, what we find is that by the while people expect monotony in the 19th century, by the 20th century, um, they're kind of coming to expect that diversion, variety, entertainment... Um, are there due, um, that human nature requires constant stimulation. And certainly our own age and our own technologies of the 21st century um, play upon this perceived need um, to keep us constantly engaged with online games or new apps. Um, so uh, what 19th century people expected out of life and what we expect out of life is is somewhat different.
0: Let me come back again to to two more of the major themes that you poke at in, in in the chapters especially i was really fascinated by your questioning as to whether or not or to what degree technology has taken awe and wonder out of modern life um what what made you start to to poke at that
1: yeah um well and, and to that to that um concern you know there's some clever psychologists of have called the the concern ADD and they don't by that they don't mean attention deficit d- disorder but awe deficit disorder that um, perhaps we're not capable of experiencing awe as much as our four, forefathers that chapter really complements our chapter on uh, narcissism um, it, one doesn't usually think of awe and narcissism together right but uh, awe has been sometimes conceived like the awe that uh, our forefathers the Jefferson uh, had when he looked at sort of the landscapes of his own day, um, of nature, uh, provoked a sense of humility in him uh, when he contemplated. Right, exactly.
0: The, uh, the awe yeah. is the idea that there's something bigger than me, greater than me. I'm, I'm tiny in the face of this larger thing.
1: Right. And so if you don't have much awe in your life, then perhaps those moments in which you can uh, experience that sort of humility vis-a-vis the, the greatness of the universe are diminished. Uh, so as narcissism goes up um, and if awe is going down, sort of, those, those sort of narratives complement each other. Uh, and, and another reason why—so why is perhaps awe gone down? I mean, it's partly speculative, but, you, you know, it's much harder to see the Milky Way than it once was. Uh, in China, with all the pollution, it's even hard to see the sunrise. I mean, I was looking at a, uh, they're, they're even putting up screens that'll sort of simulate a sunrise in public squares in, in, in China um, to try to sort of simulate that sort of awe. So, if when you don't have that, those sort of uh, encounters with nature, um, then then perhaps you, you won 't have as much humility as you once had, we do say that you know awe the sort of the awe of nature sort of transforms itself towards awe of towards of technology, so we are still experiencing awe today um, um, but that kind of awe perhaps is different than the kind of uh, uh, awe that we have is towards nature right that if you have awe towards technology. You can sort of take pride in the power of humanity. It might be a little less humbling than the, the type of awe that we experience when we're contemplating God or nature.
0: Well, I wonder actually, Susan, that, that what Luke just said it made me think of – like there's that – We remember, you know, uh, our first uh, going on the Internet and and connecting with uh, communities that we couldn't get locally. Or the first time you had a smartphone, you're like, I can do this with a phone. Like, there's a sense of awe there. I wonder to what degree – well, actually, there's two things. I wonder to what degree – like that's when when we when we think about like oh technology is is not as exciting as it once was like if if that awe has gone away for a lot of people or to what degree like that that sort of like technology makes things simple the fact that you don't have to walk out on the street and wonder where a cab is it's like you order the cab first like how much making everything simple takes away that awe and that's what technology's supposed to do right
2: So some people we spoke to when we interviewed them talked about feeling almost entitled to the new technologies of their day. Um, They were so accustomed to getting the latest updates um, the the newest iPhone um, with enhanced powers that um, it became kind of an expectation and part of what they believed it was to be a human was to constantly have the new um, and more powerful device in your hands. Uh, that stands in pretty marked contrast to people who are contemplating um, new technologies, whether it's the telegraph or the railroad or even things like the lightning rod. Um, people were amazed by these Uh, devices, and often they appreciated them, but often they were also fearful of them and wondered if they should even have these powers um, that seemed like the possession of divinity, um, that God controlled lightning and he used it to strike down people he thought were sinners. So should you really have a lightning rod on your house? Um, God controls uh, electricity. Should you really be able to appropriate it to, you know, send a banal message halfway across the continent? Um, There were questions about um, were we as human beings entitled to these powers or were we becoming like Prometheus? Um, You don't see that much skepticism after uh, the late 19th, early 20th century. More and more people incorporate um, the Powers of technology is part of what it means to be human, and and we had uh, folks we interviewed who told us that that um, they think the the smartphone is now part of the definition of humanness. Um, so our sense of our own powers has grown, and our sense that these powers belong to forces outside of ourselves has definitely diminished. One other thing that led us to write the awe chapter was that um, when we were reading about these nineteenth century uh, inventions, it was so clear that um, that. People felt a sense of wonder. Um, And when we did interviews um, across the country, we would ask people, do you feel awed by your phone? Do you feel um, like it's an amazing thing? And sometimes people would say, indeed, they did. Um, But a lot of times people would kind of giggle, particularly when they heard that folks were awed by the telegraph, which to them was this antique weird thing they didn't even understand. Like, how could you be awed by that? So just kind of the difference in emotional register made us think there might be uh, a, a big tra- and important transformation there.
1: Um, the, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean the, this is not uh, original to us. Um, the um, scholar the David Nye wrote a book called Techn- "The Technological Sublime," and he's argued that the half-life of of awe—he uh, doesn't use the term awe, but effectively it's awe—has declined uh, with you know with every sort of uh, with the acceleration of innovation. So people were awed by the train. Um, you know from its inception up until pretty much uh, the beginning of the 20th century uh, but nowadays the half life of awe is much much shorter and much shorter time span uh,
0: coming back to one more thing going down the list of of uh, things that you're investigating or interrogating um, I feel like this is super super relevant and i we don't have to necessarily get political about it but The idea of modern media and modern technology making us more angry, riling us up. Um, What what did you find about that?
2: Well, uh, that was certainly a, a big question that emerged more and more over the course of writing this book. At first we weren't going to—we didn't even think a chapter on anger would be that interesting, and as we got farther along in the writing process, it became clear that it was something we needed to deal with because so many people were talking about anger. Um, It's clear that other technologies in the past allowed people to communicate um, anger—newspapers, the um, radio—but uh, there were a lot more restrictions, too. Um, generally, in the 19th century, the people who were most empowered to be angry uh, were white men, and there were real social costs and sometimes physical perils people faced. If, if they were um, women, if they were um, African-American enslaved people trying to express anger, if they were um, emancipated slaves after reconstruction um, free free people um, expressing anger, the racial line was um, was fixed and uh, people um, who were who were not white males were really um, kind of prohibited from from being angry. And so one thing we think um, online media has done is that it's offered um, a new forum for people from all backgrounds to um, express emotions um, that once were only the province of of white men. So in that way, there's been a bit of a democratizing force um, with these technologies. Um, and some people have used um, uh, social media platforms to fight for social justice. Um, other, other times we see a lot of trolling going on, so it kind of depends um, what purpose it's put to.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or see what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America but what about just the the putting it simply the raising of the temperature like how, how like again this is one of those things where I feel like yes I, I feel like this is settled historical consensus that there when radio came around um demagogues and populists and whatever seized on this new media and and made their message uh you know achieve as as silicon valley would say scale that they couldn't have achieved before i'm wondering how you guys came down on the idea of that of like Maybe it's not just anger. Maybe it's just the raising of the temperature, like the, the increasing fervency and things like that.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, here's an angle on it anyway. I mean, the transition from the awe chapter is, you know, that perhaps if we can sort of recover awe and, and the, or if we can just remember that there's still a lot of awe towards technology uh, and, and that, that that can act as a social glue, uh, then perhaps we can sort of become a more harmonious society. And the problem is, of course, is that is that awe is not evenly. I think I'm stealing a term from um, I'm forgetting the, the tech guru who said this first, right, with, with regard to not evenly distributed. Yes. Yeah. I'm, right. Who is that? I can't
0: uh, remember. I think it's a science fiction writer or somebody like that. The, the yeah. future is not evenly distributed. Yes.
1: Yeah. And so awe is not evenly distributed either. Right. And so, um when it's not evenly distributed, uh, the, the power of awe isn't really going to temper uh, incivility as much as it could were it more evenly distributed. And so, the sort of the sanguine, sort of positive, uh, um, and optimism that we have sort of in the in the in the awe chapter, uh, we we sort of uh, backpedal a bit on that in the anger chapter uh, because you know we wrote this the book from from almost for the last decade yeah and so things changed pretty radically i think you've used this term as well right the worm is turned mm. uh, yeah, you know well and i've i've said that
0: you know when i started working on my book it was like oh you're going to explain to me how the internet happened and then two or three years ago it was like oh you're going to explain how the internet ruined our lives like it, that, <laughs> that, i feel like actually your book is almost more uh of the moment because it's like trying to figure out like Uh, is is the worm turned is are things getting rotten and to what degree has it always been thus or like is this this just uh, always what happens when new technology comes
2: yeah and i think you know we would argue that certainly the internet didn't invent anger uh but it's given it freer license for for good and for ill um and you know our some of the people we interviewed kind of recognized um intuitively even if they weren't coders themselves that there's something in those algorithms that you know drives more business to angry tweets right that there seemed to be a way that um, anger um, was used to maximize traffic and advertising opportunities and redirect people um, to other sites and while they couldn't explain um, the back end of it um, They could observe it themselves, and so definitely there's a a feeling that um, anger is being uh, manipulated and monetized um, today, um, uh, at least in some of its forms online, um, uh, which may be uh, polarizing us more.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it was the last chapter we wrote. And as Susan said, you know, we we turned in the manuscript and our editor came back to us a couple of months later and we thought we were done. He said, hey, you need to write a chapter on on anger. And of course, this was all post-2016. It's no accident, perhaps, that uh, we were writing that chapter. It was the last chapter we wrote. And it is an opportunity there to sort of reflect back on um, you know, wh- where have these technologies taken us? Are they really uh, di- being distributed in in, in um, ways that uh, benefit everyone in society? Um, so, yeah, it's uh, – anger is important. Uh, and when we we had to include it at the behest of our editor, but also just because it's in important of itself given uh, what's happened. From, no, 100%. 100%. You know,
0: um, well, so as as you've been mentioning, a good portion of this book is devoted to interviews with with contemporary people of of all walks of life, um, talking about these issues. You know, even on a personal level, right? Uh, and and what struck me was how much it feels like we're all still groping around in the dark about this stuff, just like we almost still don't have the language to describe our feelings and experiences about this stuff. So I, I've had this thought before too. Like it's, we're, we're still so in the moment that like, we, we don't even know whatever transformation, whether it is profound or whatever our society is going through. It's, it's hard for us to grok it and like describe it when you're in it. Um, what did you think about the experiences of of posing these sorts of questions to n- normal everyday people and how it actually you know impacts their lives?
2: One thing we noticed was that people were extremely eager to talk, um, and you know we were talking between ourselves every day about it so after a while, it was like, well, of course these are issues we should be thinking about and um, it seemed like people on their own, in their own heads had been posing some of these questions to themselves, but hadn't like had wrestling with it. Yeah. But, but welcome the opportunity to talk it out and, um, and, and think about what was happening. And we both had this experience teaching classes too, where our students didn't realize you could think about these issues systematically, um, or, uh, you know, other, in another way than just on their own, in, in terms of their own personal, you know, Instagram feed or something. And, and so uh, one thing we found was this great eagerness and enthusiasm to discuss it.
1: Um, yeah, you know, after we give presentations, you know, people come up afterwards and you, you expect them to be asked ask, you know, pointed questions or challenging questions, but oftentimes it's just them wanting to come up and talk about their own feelings about technology, and you you sort of feel more like you're a therapist, uh, off, uh, and not even offering sort of self help remedies, but just in a willing ear to help help them work through the issues for themselves. And so, in that sense, even if we don't have any clear answers to any of their questions, at least we offer them a forum in which they can. Um, they can voice their concerns.
2: And we found, you know, of course it depended on who we interviewed. We interviewed some people who worked uh, at Pixar and we interviewed college students and we interviewed 87 year olds and you'd find this, you know, obviously a whole range of um, uh, responses and uh, differing analytical frameworks for understanding what was going on, but the commonality was that these were you know we ideally thought well we'll interview people for 45 minutes or an hour and sometimes these would be 3 or 4 hour conversations cuz that's how how much people want to talk
0: um final question is uh y- y- you guys quote at some point um andrew bosworth's uh, Facebook's now and famous quote that I harped on last year a lot, uh, where he says, like, the ugly truth is that we believe in connecting people so deeply that anything that allows us to connect more people is often de facto good. And again, this comes to something that I'm res- wrestling with all the time, which is like, I always thought that like giving everyone a soapbox, giving everyone a voice is de facto good. Connecting people around the world is de facto good. Uh, to to some degree, I agree with Andrew, even though I don't agree with him on a lot of things. But um, implicit in all of tech, and, and, and uh, you know, this is a totally separate like economic question about like, well, more engagement, more usage because it helps their bottom line; they can sell more ads and blah 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 blah. I'm wondering if maybe we're coming out of this sort of maximalism period i uh, i'm I'm sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm rambling and this is a long question but like I, i i interviewed on the internet history podcast justin hall who a lot of people credit as being the first blogger and he went through this period of like sharing everything and then he completely withdrew from the internet and then he came back to the internet once he learned how it he could live with it and not ruin his life through it. And so I'm wondering as a society, and again, I'm just a dilettante historian, I'm not an academic, but I I wonder in the historical sense, how much you think that these are growing pains, these are all of us learning as a society how to deal with these new changes, and if the next generation, five, ten years from now, they'll look back on us and they're like, oh, oh you, you got duped by um, that crazy guy on the radio or TV or whatever. Well, you, you didn't know – you were too naive about the media and that sort of thing. How, how do you think – to what degree do you think that these are things that will solve themselves as society
1: just moves forward? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, your book, How the Internet Happened, is a great, great read. And so uh, I, I would not call yourself a dilettante. I'm just uh, I appreciate it. You. <laughs> you. Uh, everyone should pick up a copy and read it if they want to learn uh, about how the Internet happened. Um, I mean, but, but to your question, a, a part of the answer is, I, I think and we can say this about Silicon Valley, is that they're there. there uh, Kevin Kelly, uh, his book, um, uh, What Technology Wants, it's sort of the emblematic a sort of manifesto of sort of technological determinism that that technology is an inherently good and progressive force in society, and for many years um, that's how we were sort of uh, describing the internet, um, that it was an inherently democratic force, that uh, um, Twitter would uh, catalyze the Arab uh, Spring, yeah. Um, and so that all we needed to do was sort of ride the wave of innovation, and that would take us into a bright utopian future. And of course, um, you know, when the worm turned in 2015 or 2016, we've had an opportunity to reconsider that um, that, that, that that sort of ideology, that religion, the, the idea that sort of technology will determine our destiny uh, in a positive way, and that we, need, we were sort of realizing that, We've got to take the reins uh, and that, that it's 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 important for us to to pl- play a role in 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 our own destiny and that we can't just count on technology taking us there uh, of its own accord.
2: And we think, you know, both that um, if uh, on the one hand, emotions change over time, we can collectively um, think about what kind of emotional culture we want our technologies to foster and obviously technologies Mm. are changeable and maybe we should um and this is definitely more luke's purview than mine but definitely we should think about what kind of technologies we want to design and um and realize that they have emotional and social implications
0: yeah have a little have a little bit of forethinking going into what we're designing and things like that as opposed to just random uh throw it against the wall and see what sticks um, i th- I listen, uh, this book is fantastic. Um, again, it's bored, lonely, angry, stupid, changing feelings about technology from the telegraph to twitter. and and I, I think that this is a perfect example of why tech history is valuable because it is almost like, well, it, 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 it's it's not it's not fighting against Luddism or like you know, people worried about um, what technology is doing to us. It's putting it in a context to try to understand, like we said at the very beginning, if it, is it different this time, or is it the same old song that we've heard over and over again? And like that's so important to, to our society as we go forward. Thank you, guys.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened, from Netscape to the iPhone. By me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened. And if you weren't aware, I host a daily tech news podcast every weekday that comes out at 5 p.m. In that show, I tell you what happened that day in the world of tech. It's only 15 to 20 minutes long. And it's great if you love tech news. Search your podcast app for Ride Home to find the show. It's called The Tech Meme Ride Home.